Hey folks, Jared here. I'm joined today by Dennis Harbin. We'll be discussing Hugo Grotius, the seizure of the Santa Catarina, and the origins of maritime lawfare. This episode was edited and produced by David Sahita. Speaking of audio editors, we're looking to add to our team. If you're interested, please email us at ccontrol at simsec.org with your resume. At Simsec, we believe victory in the maritime domain starts with great ideas communicated compellingly. Right, fight, win. Being on Giving Tuesday and going through December, and uh, we're going to extend it a little bit out into January, we're holding our annual Right, Fight, Win holiday donation campaign to support Simsec into the new year. Simsec is proud to say since our founding, our content has been free and always will be, especially as more websites build paywalls or pursue intrusive advertising. We hope those in the Simsec community who value our free no-ad model will consider supporting us with monthly donations. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the Simsec podcast network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drac, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. On that note, I'll turn it over to Kimbersman. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Hello, Hashim mates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Lieutenant Commander Dennis Harbin. We're going to be discussing his paper for the McMullen Naval History Symposium, The Seizure of the Santa Catarina, Hugo Grotius, and the Origins of Maritime Lawfare. So, Dennis, welcome. Could you start by telling us a little bit about your background, please? Yeah, sure. And first of all, uh, thanks a lot for inviting me on. And this podcast is just an amazing forum. So I'm really honored to to sort of be a part of this and and be brought on today. So I'm a Navy judge advocate, currently assigned here in the Suffolk, Virginia Beach area on the Joint Staff and the Joint Force Development Directorate. But prior to that, you know, I was a SWO first. That's how I started my naval career and transitioned into the JAG Corps through the Navy Law Education Program. For the past years, I've just done basic JAG stuff that everyone sort of sees and knows. I was a prosecutor. I was a defense counsel. I did legal assistance in Norfolk, thousands of wills and, and all that good stuff, landlord tenant. Um, and then I went to Spain and I was the uh, legal advisor to the commander for Naval Activities Spain over there, which is a great time for the family. And then before getting here to the joint staff, I spent a year in Charlottesville I'm at the Army's JAG school, really doing a deep dive into military law, national security law, again, for about a year. Part of the genesis of, of digging into these fascinating issues that I look forward to uh, talking with you today. Thanks. As a reminder, all opinions are our own and not representative of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. I'll start with the uh, the first most obvious question is, who was Hugo Grotius? Hugo Grotius was a Dutch lawyer in the 1600s, around the 17th century, early part thereof, I kind of open up the intro in my paper as describing him as a lawgiver. And I think really what illustrates who he is, is that, you know, if you go into the Capitol building and around the house chamber, there's 23 doors. Above each door is this marble relief of who we've recognized as lawgivers, who has inspired democracy and the rule of law through the ages. And You know, a lot of folks recognize the name, obviously, like Thomas Jefferson and George Mason, Hammurabi, Moses, Napoleon is up there. And one of them is this Hugo Grotius. I was first introduced to him in law school and a lot of the C class for reasons we'll talk about. Again, he's sort of known as one of the, if not the father of international law for his big, important work that he wrote later in his life on the laws of war and peace, which he really brought forward, you know, this just war tradition written by a lot of 
theologians back in the Middle Ages, and, and but he brought it all forward into the Enlightenment to a period in which we recognize global and international affairs today. Based on his, you know, when he was alive, he sort of kicked all of that off. And he's got just a fascinating story. And, and you know, one of the, the interesting things about his life is that he was exiled from uh, the Netherlands. He was put in prison for a life sentence in a, in a prison there in a castle. And his wife actually helped him break out of the castle through hiding in a book chest, right? And he fled to Paris and lived there uh, for most of his life um, until he, he died. But that's where he wrote this major work on the laws of war and peace, uh, which is really part of it. And, and we'll talk more, but as, as a young man, uh, he was a corporate lawyer. I think he was hired, you know, he became a lawyer when he was 15 years old, right? So he was a, he was a child prodigy. He was hired by the uh, Dutch East India Company to represent them in this whole Santa Catarina business. You described the situation in the South China Sea during Grotius's lifetime as analogous to today. How is that the case? I draw the line that the South China Sea sort of hosted this 17th century version of great power competition with navigation and trading rights really at its core. Some folks may be familiar, you know, how the Pope divided the world back in the 1400s or 1500s. I think it was 1494, right, was this treaty between Spain and Portugal. And the Portuguese got a lot of, you know, mostly East Asia and those trading rights. Well, then as the maritime powers in Europe started to become wealthier and push out, um, there was a lot of competition. That competition happened to be in the South China Sea. Grotius was sort of at the center of it, representing, again, uh, the Dutch trading companies. The heart of the issues were really about navigation and trading, which arguably is the same sort of issues we're dealing with today in the South China Sea. You wrote that the seizure of the Santa Catarina was a seminal event in maritime history. So what happened? It was interesting. I found this article when I was doing my research in the paper, and it was celebrating um, the birthday of Singapore. And it was, uh, you know, a local journalist who wrote, hey, this is an event that everybody should know because it really sort of kicked off this episode of international law and the freedom of the sea and navigational rights Think great power competition. The Portuguese in that area have a hold with a lot of the trading and colonies on the smaller islands there. The Dutch are trying to push in. And of course, there's violence. There's clashing. So Captain Van Hemskirk was in command of this Dutch trading fleet. And he heard about how a year prior, and this is about 1603, so 1602-ish time frame, the Portuguese and one of the little islands over there uh, murdered 20 Dutch sailors. So he sought revenge. He partnered with the Johor people that's in Malaysia. Um, and he was tipped off that this Portuguese trading fleet was coming through China and they would be anchoring right there at the mouth of the Strait of Singapore. So he sat there, he waited. On an early morning, he woke, he found the Santa Catarina uh, anchored. And it's called a now. And I've got the dimensions. So these Portuguese nows, which the Santa Catarina was, had a 32-foot draft, weighed about 1,400 tons, and was manned uh, with 700 sailors. Probably had about 100 women and children on. So these were huge. Definitely like dwarfed the ships that the, the Dutch were using. 
he opened up fire, right? He had a small galleys, but he had his two ships, the White Lion and the Akmar, and they just opened up on her and bombarded her for about 10 hours. And then in that evening, the captain of the Santa Catarina surrendered. So they took it as a prize, sailed it back to Amsterdam, where the College of Admiralty declared it essentially as a fair prize, which kicked off how Hugo Grotius got involved. How was the Santa Catarina's case resolved and what was Grotius's role? The College of Admiralty, right? And, and we all know it's Admiralty law and prize law, right? And back in the age of sale, you captured ships, you brought them in. Uh, there would a, be a court that adjudicated these cases and then usually would condemn it as a prize, which was what the case was here. Um, they sold it off, sold off all the cargo. This ship was massive. It sold off for an, essentially what the income of the English government was at the time. Definitely what the uh, English East India Company was making. So this was a huge amount of money, right? And so it drew a lot of public scrutiny, both in the Netherlands. You know, this is they're at war with Spain during this period, but they're not at war with Portugal. So what are we doing sort of capturing them sh- their ships? Is this really a fair prize? Was it right for a Dutch trader to sort of use the type of force that he did to capture this ship? The Dutch East India Company hired Hugo Grotius. And at the time, I think he was like 21 or 22 years old. And sort of not to like represent them in court, but to sort of be a public relations counselor, right? To sort of do damage control and really get out in public opinion and justify what the company did. So he looked at this problem of using force in the South China Sea against the Dutch from the perspective of a corporate lawyer. But when he did that, he wrote this massive book called, actually it went unpublished, Commentary on the Laws of Prize and Booty, right? In which he really sort of set out uh, this justification for the use of force centered around the fact that the right to navigate and trade is a natural law right. And it's been recognized also through the ages, uh, relying heavily on the Romans. He wrote this piece and it eventually wasn't published. You know, they they sort of moved forward. But then a few years later, uh, when the Dutch and Spanish were negotiating a peace treaty, the company again was like, we want our trading rights protected. Right. We don't want our the Dutch government to negotiate away our right to trade in Southeast Asia. So they hired Grotius again and he essentially pulled out the pieces uh, on the freedom of navigation, the freedom of trade and published them in what we know as today as Mare Librum or the free sea. Um, and that really sparked this debate that, that I think we'll talk about. What was the legal basis for Grotius's argument for freedom of the seas? But this is where international law as sort of how we recognize it and understand it today was first being developed in form. So prior to this, we had sort of Latin verses and poems written centuries earlier. We had a basis of Roman law. We sort of understood what state practice was, but also this was a period where states were forming, right? And then pushing out throughout the world, which is what international law is when states interact with each other. So there's no longer just border disputes, um, but they're global affairs, right? Uh, Grotius was also extremely religious, um, recognized Protestant theologian as well. And so he relied heavily, just as other scholars 
in that day did relied on natural law or what sort of, you know, where God gives us the rights as, as people and sort of that tradition mixed with, again, what, what Romans had said. And so the two sort of factors that he developed from the, to argue for and defend this free sea principle uh, was one that the ability of states to trade and thus navigate freely is again, a natural law, right? So God, nature gave people goods to survive, but not all the goods are in one place. So therefore you have to go and get the goods. And therefore if God has, or nature has given those goods out to people, then you should have a right to go where you need to, to have your bounty, right? And to, to prosper and to take advantage of those gifts, right? So that's the right to navigate and trade. Um, and then the second is that the ocean, unlike the land, cannot be possessed and thus is common property, right? It's property in common. There, he just sort of makes the analogy, like you can't build on the ocean. China, right? And that, that's a whole different discussion later about artificial islands. But at the time, you know, you can't build forts on the ocean. You can't possess it. You can't occupy it. And if you can't do that, then it's the right to, again, trade and, and navigate freely on it because it is a common. That idea that the sea is common, right, sort of sparked this debate. And the English and the Scottish, you know, the, the British people really sort of push again, push back. They wrote, I think it was a Scottish jurist, wrote Mari Clausum, right, defending fishing rights. Um, so there was this whole, huge debate that went back and forth. And we see sort of the result of this debate and what we know today as UNCLOS, right? The United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which really was this compromise between coastal rights, far we can go out, what do we have sovereignty over, what do we have jurisdiction, rights over resources, versus, again, this understanding and this principle that people have the right to navigate freely throughout the world. And so you get that from UNCLOS. Again, that was really sort of the legacy and where it came to Grotius first being the one to articulate this and this enlightenment perspective. Now, you argue that one of the byproducts of Grotius' involvement in the seizures is his defense laid the foundation of maritime lawfare. Um, What was the legacy of his defense of the seizure of Santa Catarina? You look through Grotius, and when I first started this project, the question I was really trying to answer was, is the free sea principle, the freedom of navigation, is it just to go to war over that? Is that a just cause for war, right? We understand territorial sovereignty or territorial integrity and political sovereignty, right? The, the UN charter. But what about this principle of the freedom of navigation? He also wrote later in his life, and what he's really known for and what he's famous for is on the laws of war and peace. And when he did this, he, I would argue, cemented this relationship between law and war. Um, war, war was no longer just about who had the biggest army. You know, wars were fought over greed and for many other things. Grotius really laid the foundation that for there to be a just war, it had to have sort of a legal reasoning. He made this case that, hey, war is just like the courts. And when there isn't a court to adjudicate your claim, then war is moral. But it had to be based on these recognizable rights. And one of these rights was the freedom of the sea. Now, obviously, we think of war differently now. The UN Charter 
essentially prohibits war except for very limited circumstances. Where this gap is between these, this right that we all understand and have, but yet maybe doesn't rise to the level of justifiable conflict in this era, right, of this rules-based order in which war is essentially prohibited, what fills that gap? And then I argue, short of war and what we sort of recognize as lawfare, these types of military operations, specifically naval operations, that rely on the law to do it, but also at the same time is enforcing this international law principle of the free sea. So I, I think this sort of like relationship between the two is really the legacy of Grotius. Instead of just saying, hey, Van Hemskirk took revenge, he did what he needed to do, but no, he laid this huge foundation that no, the, he was defending this freedom to navigate and to trade and laid the foundation for that. And we see that even today, you know, in the 21st century with freedom of navigation operations with, with all of that. So I think that's sort of the legacy the Santa Catarina and Grotius's defense of the seizure um, had. So you kind of gave a, a definition of lawfare uh, in the course of your last answer. That how do you apply yeah. lawfare to sea power? Or how does lawfare yeah, yeah. apply to sea power? So lawfare, as, as sort of we recognize it, and there's no doctrinal definition or anything like that, right? It was the phrase as we sort of use it today was coined by General Dunlap, who was then a colonel. Now he's a retired major general, uh, was the uh, deputy judge advocate general of the Air Force, right? He wrote a paper back in 2001, recognizing how essentially ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all, you know, are using the law to achieve military objectives pointing to the fact that we're violating the law of armed conflict and that's sort of having an effect, right? We had ceasefires and everything like that. Now, when we focus towards peer-to-peer competition or, or what have you, the definition of lawfare is being expanded. It, a lot of it's this perception of legitimacy. It's this information conflict of getting the right message out there, justifying your actions so that you get support both at home and abroad, that's an important effect. How it results to see, or how it involves sea power is that historically speaking, um, and there's some great work out there. Uh, there's a book called The Free Sea by Pedrozo and, and Kraska, uh, professors at the Naval War College, who really set out looking at the history of the U.S. Navy, how most conflicts, right, related to some sort of aspect of the law of the sea, the freedom of navigation, whether it's unrestricted submarine warfare with U-boats, whether it's, you know, the War of 1812, right, and British impressing our sailors. So every turn throughout our naval history had some sort of something to do with the law. And it's just by the very nature of the Navy and what the environment is like. One guy I quote a lot, a professor, D.P. O'Connell, he was a New Zealand legal professor, And he wrote that the law has never been static. Its pliable character has meant that it has been made to serve the purposes of sea power and so has become a weapon in the naval armory. And he said, the law of the sea has thus become the stimulus to sea power and not its restraint. And I love those two quotes because, again, in his book, The Influence of Law and Sea Power, he looks back at history and, again, sort of connects the dots of all of these maritime clashes. And whether it's Conflict at sea, obviously, is just different in nature than conflict on land. 
I think a lot of the international legal issues are more likely to play out at sea, removed from the population, right? Below the threshold of troops massing on the border. Whereas at sea, literally you could go into conflict tonight at any point in time, likely sometimes over a dispute of an international legal term, right? By its very nature, the law influences sea power through Grotius and I think the free sea, we sort of see that while sea power relies on this legal concept of the free sea. I think it's a circular logic that we're still trying to flush out. You mentioned uh, freedom of navigation operations. It's probably the uh, the thing that most people are familiar with as far as uh, the way that you've discussed Grotius and the way we demonstrate the freedom of the sea. Are there any other ways that you would describe it as being relevant today? We try to justify the, the United States, and you, and you see this when we commit military forces and, and we use force, we couch it in legal terms, right? Because that is the way we justify it. That, and that really, again, goes back to Grotius's other work on the laws of war and peace, tying down and linking our ability to use force into sort of a legal right or a legal term. The clearest example especially related to sea power and naval operations is FONOPS, because that's just the perfect one, right? Where literally we're working with the State Department, conducting a naval operation for the very sake of enforcing a legal right. But again, that free sea principle and that freedom of navigation, we rely on it in order to conduct that operation. But while we're conducting that operation, we're also defending it. So I think it's an amazing sort of, you know, I guess both ways. And I think, it, again, it's a circular logic here. But I, I just think that's a wonderful example. And, you know, it, we, there's others, you know, there's the artificial islands piece. I think that sort of falls in the category of misusing the law is also lawfare. And obviously, we as a defending the rules-based order, we're not going to misuse it. We're going to try to enforce it and use it. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, Dennis Harbin. Uh, Dennis, where can we find you online? What are you working on next? Probably primarily LinkedIn. And I'm still trying to, again, flush out this whole, this logic of this influence and this relationship between law and specifically sea power, right? And when I was at McMullen, there was a lot of great papers uh, that talked about prize law and privateering and naval arms treaty. So I, I want to maybe sort of dig into again, looking at the historical perspective, how law influences sort of national security decision-making in the maritime domain, right? Really, I think I, I focused on this one event and tied it again to today, but now try to fill in the gap in the middle. Well, thank you again for coming on to the listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.